Welcome to this. Okay. Uh, welcome to the building science. To the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello, and welcome back. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Christoph is away in Europe visiting family, so today you get me, your ever-faithful producer, Miguel. And I've got a treat for you today, a surprise, a bonus, if you will. It's a short episode of the podcast, because it's summer here in Austin, and it's been long and hot. We wanted to do something fun with a bonus episode, so here it is. Today, my friends, we're doing a crossover episode. That's right. Just like that time that Supernatural and Scooby-Doo did a crossover. The gang, they're about to get a mystery. I don't know, gang. Sounds like this could be the start of a mystery. You know, uh, Sam and I are actually mystery solvers, too. Or that really weird time when the X-Files and cops did a crossover. Or the most obvious crossover of all time, when Law & Order did a crossover episode with Law & Order SVU. Or for you weirdos out there like me, who really loved it when Archer did a crossover episode with Bob's Burgers. Sorry guys, we're, uh, closed. Yeah. Thanks for getting the sign for me, because we are closed. Long story short, it's kind of like those crossovers, but this time it's the Building Science Podcast doing a crossover with The Build Show. If you haven't heard of The Build Show yet, now you have. Matt Reisinger has a wildly popular YouTube channel that you should definitely check out after this episode. The whole channel and all of his content are dedicated to building science, fine craftsmanship, exploring the products and techniques that are available to builders out there today. And Matt is just frankly a great human being, a good friend, a longtime colleague, and a really excellent host. He's got an awesome team of people, including his other host, Jordan Smith, and his producer extraordinaire, Joey Pewterbaugh. The audio you're about to hear is from an episode of The Build Show called How to Design and Install a Good HVAC System for the South. It was released this summer after Matt Reisinger, alongside the Journal of Light Construction senior editor, Ted Cushman, interviewed Christoph. And I'm just going to let you listen to it from here. So enjoy and stay cool out there, y'all. All right, guys. So on the Build Show today, we're doing it roundtable style. We're going to be talking about how to get to an excellent heating and cooling system for your new house, especially in the hot, humid south. And I've got two fantastic guys with me. You've seen Christoph Irwin if you've seen my channel at all. <laughs> Christoph is a mechanical engineer and the owner of Positive Energy that does my HVAC designs on my houses. And our big special guest today is Ted Cushman. Ted is the senior editor of the Journal of Light Construction, and I'm actually going to turn the mic over to you, Ted, to ask Christoph and I some questions on this topic. Okay, so I caught a plane all the way from Maine to be here in Austin, and it feels a little different here. <laughs> Does it? it? As we're sweating today. My house doesn't have air conditioning, and I, I haven't felt the need for it. Mm, um, wow. Here in Austin, it's still May, and I feel a need for air conditioning right here in this house. Oh, yeah. I, Christoph, you designed, your company designed the air conditioning system in this house that we're here to test today. That's right. When you're designing an air conditioning system for a big, complicated house like this, what matters? What are you trying to accomplish? 
I start with the word conditioning, right? Air conditioning is not air cooling. Conditioning, it's sometimes overlooked, but conditioning implies conditioned for something, right? And this one is conditioned for this family to live in this space, right? So what does that mean? It means primarily it should be filtered air, it should be mixed with outdoor air, it should be ventilated, and the air should stay dry. It's also crazy hot, so it's got to be cooled off, right? But air cooling and air conditioning are not the same thing, and often they are kind of mixed together. People don't understand that. Well, why does it have to be dry? Why does the air have to be dry? Well, you see the wood all around us? It's always going to be there, and sheetrock's going to go up, insulation's going to go up. That wood is still going to be able to be exposed to the humidity in this space, right? Mm -hmm. Windows open, us in the building, every time we breathe, we're releasing moisture. So if you take an organic material like wood in the presence of air, which is pretty likely to be around, and microbial growth, or you don't say microbial growth, you take air and wood and microbes, which are everywhere, and now you add water, the microbes spring to life, and they start to digest or multiply on the wood. When they get there, the little insects will get there. Once the little insects will get there, larger critters will get there. I mean, pretty soon you got small mammals. I mean, it all starts with keeping it dry. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to keep my house from being an environment like a jungle where every kind of creature lives. That's right. It's good. So, so, but doesn't my air conditioner just, I mean, do I need to do anything special to have dry air? I, does the oh, air conditioner yes. will keep it dry, won't it? The air conditioner, when it's running and the compressor is on and the coil is cold, will absolutely dry the air. And that means at peak design conditions, which here in Austin is 100 degrees Fahrenheit, when it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, your air is going to stay dry. But you, I don't know if you know this, but the majority of the hours of the year in Austin are not at 100 degrees. And in fact, they're lower than the typical set point temperature. It's something like 72, 75 degrees Fahrenheit, average temperature in Austin. So to keep the air dry, you need a system that's focused on keeping the air dry. And that's a dedicated dehumidifier. And there's a lot more. I mean, we could go long answer, short answer on this, but that's the short answer. So this house has a dedicated dehumidifier in it? Absolutely. Yeah, it has an Ultra Air 98H dehumidifier. It's tied into the same distribution system. It could have a separate distribution system. But what's happening is there's a sensor in this space that's just paying attention to humidity. That's its job, right? Pays attention to humidity, comes on, pulls humidity out of the air. Dry air comes out of that diffuser. That means dry air comes in. It can absorb, you could say it that way, it's not quite right, but you could absorb some humidity from the space. The net humidity in the space goes down as dry air came in, separate from heating and cooling it. So what about your control system? Does it have to be able to operate your dehumidifier and your cooling capacity? That's interesting. So no. The answer is the control system for the dehumidifier is what it, what's its signal? The humidity in the air around us, right? Separate but integrated, you could say integrated signal is the temperature of the air around us, right? So the temperature of the air around us is going to turn on, the, the, which happens to be a VRF multi-split system in this building. So what typically happens is that temperature signal is asked to be dual purpose. It's supposed to be a temperature signal, and hopefully it also ends up controlling humidity right. But it's sort of random, right? It's not, your VRF system is not running based on the humidity signal. So this system with the dehumidifier and a control system for the dehumidifier and a VRF cooling system, more than one unit in this house, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Is that a, you designed this, did you design it to be cheaper? I designed it to be the, kind of like the optimized 
version of what's available in the market, what do installers know how to install, where is the market going? I mean, these systems will last 25 years, 30 years, right? So if I put in something today that's a laggard technology, good grief, where is it going to be? How is that going to affect resale value? Mm -hmm. So it's a complicated question. So the answer is um, I try to be a good engineer. I try to take multiple um, metrics into account, price being one of them. But the reality is we have a, a system that delivers HVAC to our homes that has really optimized itself for low first cost for decades. And this is going to be more. This is probably going to be 10, 15% more. And let me interject on that too. You know, Christoph, yeah, at the more. Human Climate Conference this week, you said something that was really profound uh -oh. uh, that's gotten me thinking the last couple of days. You said, you know, Typically, people spend the least amount of money on their duct work, and when they think about designing or building a good system, it's all about the equipment. You know, should I install a carrier? Should I put a Mitsubishi in? What equipment should I put in? But you said something that was really profound, which is your heating and cooling system is really a part of your structure of the house. You know, your HVAC system, uh, the box itself that produces heating or cooling, it's got a 20, 25 year lifespan, but the duct work you kind of think of that as your studs. That's your infrastructure on the house. Absolutely. And you're not going to replace that in 20, 25 years. So if you put flexible duct in, like I see all over the place, and that flexible duct starts to degrade, like I see on houses that are even 10 years old that are up in their hot, humid attics, yeah. what are we going to do in 20, 25 years? That's basically a worthless system. And in the meantime, it hasn't delivered the air that we wanted at the temperature we wanted and at the... Uh, result we were looking for, which is comfort for our clients. And so um, if you wouldn't mind, unroll that plan real quick for us. Let's see if we can get a little of this on camera, but uh, we won't show our homeowner's name here or address. That's but what zones. I do want to show is how detailed of a plan I'm getting from your office. And this just doesn't typically happen. And I would like to see this change in our industry. So this is all scaled dimension. So what, so what Christoph's company is doing is the engineers there, the smart people are figuring out, okay, here's the framing plan from the structural engineer. Where do we put the ductwork? And not only that, but based on all the calculations they did, how, what, how many windows do we have? What kind of windows are they? What kind of insulation do we have? They're running the calculations, and the geeky word for that is the manual J, mm -hmm. to say how much load does this room have? So, you know, here in this master bath, how much ductwork do I need? Where does that ductwork need to be placed? And ultimately, how much CFM of airflow do I need out of that ductwork? Yeah. And just to go slightly more down the, the rabbit hole there, so ACA ANSI is where manual J is. It's a standard that comes out of those. That is for heating and cooling loads. ACA manual D is for distribution system sizing. Mm -hmm. ACA manual S is actually the one that picks the system sizing. Then mm -hmm. actually the D, you can see duct. There's actual actually manual T for terminal devices or diffuser selection, and there's ACA manual P for psychrometrics, and that would get a lot of, into a lot of your questions about wow. how does the, the reduced wetness and reduced temperature of that air, which means a different spot on the psychrometric chart, how does that affect the end result of this mix? This is called the mixed air condition that we're in. It's mm -hmm. the supply mm -hmm. air mixed with the room air. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, Matt, that really got me thinking, too, when Christoph started to talk yeah. about how the ductwork is part of the infrastructure of the house. It's buried you're not going to be able to get at it again. That's right. right. And its job is very important. And if it isn't done properly, which in so many cases it isn't done properly, yep. it's going to prevent that system, whatever equipment you choose, from doing what's needed to be done in that space. Yep. So today we're here talking about 
we're actually here to see some of this ductwork get tested and evaluated and possibly adjusted in order to do its job while we can still see it. That's right. How so, does that process work? What's up with that? So do you want to take that, Christoph, or uh, do you mind if I take it real fast? Please, so yeah. I'm, I'm going to brag on you guys a little bit. You have uh, several testers, but Sean was over here today who's tested a bunch of our projects. And there's several things that he did at this phase prior to installation going in, which means that if we have a problem or Sean finds that we didn't mm -hmm. install the ductwork correctly or don't get the correct flows, we can go back and correct that. That's huge. So for instance, he did a duct blast test on these ducts to make sure that they're not super leaky. Not as important when all the ducts are in the conditioned space, but we still want to make sure they're delivering and we don't have a problem. Exactly. Uh, we don't find an issue. So these ducts tested very, very tight. I've got a great uh, duct crew. We were like 3% loss. But even more important to that, in which I loved you, call, you called this, Ted, the, uh, the ninja portion of what they do, is then Sean went over and used the bolometer. He pressurized the system so that he could check the actual flows and ensure that when the house is completed, we'll go back and check it again, that we'd actually get the correct flow out of those particular units. So he referenced the uh, design, and for instance, in this room right back here, the design said he needed 106 CFM out of those registers. The bolometer is basically a big device that measures a small amount of airflow, a little puff of air out of there it can measure all the way up to large volumes. He puts that bolometer up to the register where the air is coming out, and he's able to actually read the reading on there and go, okay, we're within the design constraint. I don't know what that is, you know, probably plus or minus 15% right. or plus or minus 20%. Mm -hmm. Now those actually were spot on. They were like right where they needed to be. But, you know, even if we were slightly low or slightly high, we'd be okay. There's some safety factor mm -hmm. on this. But what we're looking for is, gosh, we got a problem. This is way too low. And it's nothing worse than getting that call back six months or three years later from your client. And this bedroom is super hot and I'm hardly getting any airflow out of here. You come to realize you made a mistake during construction or frankly, something happened later. Somebody crushed a duck when they were up in the attic. Now's the time to fix that. Right, that's right. I mean, can I dovetail a little bit into that? Yeah, please do. Yeah, just you know, back back to air conditioning. Like, how, where's the rubber meet the road in air conditioning? There happens to be a diffuser right there, so that's why I keep looking over there. Cold air is going to come out of that, and there's this not completely incorrect way to relate to it. It's like, oh, the cold air comes in, it hits the occupants, and they go, ah, that's that's not wrong. It's also not right. The right relationship with that is that cold air comes in and it lowers the temperature of this air mass that's in the space. This, this, like just this room that we're in, 300, 400 pounds of air are in here right now, just this room. So that cold air comes in, takes the average temperature of this air mass down. What does that mean? Well, if you lower the average temperature in a pot of water from 100 degrees to 90 degrees, what would happen to the surfaces of the pot of water? The surfaces would lower. So Matt, you, me, our predominant experience of thermally of this space is the temperature of the surrounding surfaces, which today it's hot. Mm -hmm. And it would be even hotter, except you have you know, radiant barrier control air on the outside. That's right. That's so right. what I'm getting at is that the air conditioning is about taking the temperature of the surface and lowering it. Now the air has absorbed the heat. Well, how does it get cold again? It goes over, it goes up that return, which is right there where we've simulated the air handler with a duct blaster. But the, the Return air is slightly warmer. It's absorbed the heat off of the surfaces and off of Matt's body surfaces. And it takes in through the return. That heat gets put in the refrigerant line. It gets taken outside and it gets rejected outside. Hmm. So I'm pulling cool air through my living spaces in order to cool down my walls, floor, and ceiling? That's right. So that I can feel cooler because my, my wall is cooler, my room is cooler, so I'm cooler? That's right. Yeah, air conditioning conditions the air. And as a side effect of that, their occupant conditioning occurs.
<laughs> Ted, wrap it up for us. Um, so, well, here's, we're here to test the ducts, but you designed the ducts. What's a good duct system? Oh, <laughs> and I, we're wrapping it up. So a good duct system is, is recognized as a passive, durable element to the house. It's not first cost optimized. It's something you don't want to come to again. Big metal return duct right there. Nice metal supply trunk right there, right? Those will last the life of the home. You mentioned flex duct. It's the ductboard plenums. Mm. Those are actually where, where you have real problems. The connection of the ductboard plenum to the unit, the connection how and where the runouts are taken off of these plenums. I mean, it's, it's really not done as a science. So you know, the short answer to your question is the way we make this work is we recognize that the business end of an air conditioning system are those terminal devices that sit on these supply registers. Yeah. Anyone, either one of you take a stab at uh, wrapping the entire video into a quick 30 second collision. How do you design and install a good HVAC system for the South? Ted, you've been here for the conference. Well, can we I give know, it to you? okay, it starts with the enclosure. The yep. enclosure has to be as airtight as we can make it. Mm -hmm. It has to reject radiant loads. Yep. It has to be adequately thermally insulated yep. to keep it outside heat. It has to be made with robust materials that can withstand a certain amount of humidity, maybe even store a certain amount of humidity. That's right. And then we have to match the system to those to the loads that we know that house is going to have, yeah. which means the right size equipment, it means equipment that is sized to remove the heat, the extra heat, but also to remove humidity and moisture from the space as mm -hmm. needed. We need it to be durable and reliable, and then we need a duct system that effectively delivers that cooling air to all of those spaces in the right amount. Yep. We need it to have variable controls that can respond to mid-range loads and low loads yep. as efficiently and effectively as they respond to the peak loads. And then it has to be designed and installed by people who know what they're doing. And then we need it tested and monitored and verified by somebody who knows what they're doing. That's, that's it. That's what we're here to see. Well no said. big deal. Well said. No big deal. That's all we got to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, if, <laughs> and luckily, I don't just have to that. do any of that. I just, I just like to watch. Yeah. Christoph, anything that uh, Ted missed on that uh, wrap-up? You know, just to put it in really shorthand, like this is a very important step, having a detailed mechanical design. Mm -hmm. Your homeowners are not going to experience this design. That's right. You don't eat the recipe. You don't live in the design. Neither the architect's design nor ours. The homeowners are going to experience what you put together here and how it functions. So, t so what, I'm, he's, uh, what I'm hearing him say is make sure you test it to ensure that it was done correctly. Yeah, measured performance. Guys, thanks for joining me. A long episode today, but this is really an important topic. And honestly, you just have one chance to do this right. So spend the money ahead of time. Hire a designer. Of course, Christoph's firm will be listed in the description below, but there's lots of good designers around there. I'd also recommend you hire somebody who's used to doing residential projects and not just commercial projects. And coach your clients to spend a little more and to actually pay for a good system that has good duct work and not just good equipment. Uh, in fact, I would, up for good, I would opt for good duct work before I opted for more expensive equipment, frankly, because that's going to be there a lot longer. And then also consider in the South adding a dehumidifier to the house. I've got one in my house, and man, it's made a huge difference in the one. comfort of my house. He has one in his house. So I can end up living at a higher temperature because I'm very comfortable. My dehumidifier separately takes care of the humidity in the house, and my Nest thermostat on the wall, that little fancy cool device, only deals with a sensible temperature. So it's good to separate both those. 
Guys, links for both every, both of these guys in the description below. And if you're not currently a subscriber to the Journal of Light Construction, here's my quick plug for Ted and the work he's done. I've been a subscriber since probably uh, early 2000s, 2001, 2002. And I've learned so much, Ted, from your writing and from the magazine. Yeah, me too. Highly recommend it. I also have a weekly email list that's free if you can't afford a subscription. Anything else on that front, Ted? Yeah, I think that JLC was founded and conceived of as a medium to let builders with experience and knowledge who know what they're doing educate the other builders in the world. We still do that. There's a lot of other ways to do that now. We've got YouTube <laughs> channels, we've got Twitter, we've got Instagram, we've got everything else. But JLC can still do that, and we want people to help us. Everybody, please tell us your thoughts, get with us, and we're here to help you communicate with each other about the best practices for the building industry. Yeah, because some of the best people I know are builders. Guys, thanks for joining us on this special edition of The Build Show. We'll see you next time.